Hey, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with us is David Heinemann Hansen. Well, I don't think I, I need to uh, explain who this is, but creator of Ruby on Rails, co-founder of Basecamp and Hey, racing driver, investor, the list goes on. So welcome to the podcast and uh, super excited to have you here. Me too. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, uh, I mean, honestly, when I would say uh, to anybody, I'm, I'm getting DHH on the podcast, the first um, impression would be like, okay, good luck. So <laughs> <laughs> download a beeper. Um, and I did just in case, cause I went through a few of the podcasts, uh, that you did before. Um, but <laughs> super I've been excited. on a few, I, I gotta say, I've been on a few and, and sometimes, uh, you gotta almost hit pause if I just talk too long. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, let's get to it. And the first thing, first things first, right. Uh, Lately, you've been talking a lot about moving off the cloud, uh, right? And uh, I did a bit of a research. So um, let's start with that. Um, Basecamp, hey, the whole 37 signals thing uh, serves about, if my statistics are right, about 7 million users. I, that's probably a bit high, I'd say. Um, I don't think we have any sort of daily active user stats or whatever that a lot of services use out there. Um, so that's probably a cumulative number over some uh, range. But I mean, Basecamp is, is used by well over a million people. Um, and, and hey, substantially less so because it's only sort of paying accounts that are users. With Basecamp, you can have a, a single account service, 20, 100, 1,000 users on it. And obviously, just that account um, paying for it. But we do have a lot of users. And um, finding a way to combine that with the cloud um, has been really interesting. I mean, the setup we have with the cloud is we're, we've been split for, I think, what is it now, five years or something like that, where we would have some of Basecamp, um, the latest version in particular, still running on our own hardware in our own data centers. And then we, over the past five years or so, we've moved a bunch of what we call our legacy apps. And we use that term endearingly, not despairingly, about the older versions of Basecamp, about a chat tool we made that was named Campfire, CRM, there was named Rise, and so on. We moved all that stuff into the cloud um, one by one. And then we launched Hey, our new email service, Hey.com. We launched that straight into the cloud. So we've had like one foot in both camps for quite a long time. And we've had very material use. Uh, hey, in particular, had this absolutely crazy launch where we thought, oh man, if, if we could get 10,000 people to try it after six months, that would really be really neat. It's quite hard to get people to try an email service, particularly a paid email service. And then we had, what was it? A quarter of a million people tried within three weeks because we had this bananas launch that involved Apple coming after us and trying to kill us. And that gave us a bunch of launch publicity, but that all happened in the cloud. And to some extent, I was really happy that it did. The cloud is really good at these peaky, unexpected uh, loads versus with Basecamp, that business is just so predictable. 
I mean, we can predict 18 months in advance, more or less exactly how much storage we're going to need, because this is a business that's been around for 18 years. It's SaaS, it's uh, B, it's just a very predictable business. So that we've we've kept on um, on our own hardware, but now we finally come to the conclusion that even for something like hey, do you know what the math just doesn't add up? The fundamental premise of the cloud that it was going to be easier, that you could get by with fewer people, have not turned out to be true. So now we're pulling it all back. In fact, just now, moments before we jumped on this chat, we're talking to the team about um, the the work we're doing to pull up back. Hey. So we work in these cycles at um, 37 Sickles. They're about six weeks, and that's the scope that we plan everything within. And in this cycle, we're working to bring hay back, hay home. Basically, okay. within a six-week cycle, take an enormous multi-million dollar SaaS business that was built for the cloud, yanking it out of the cloud, putting it on our own hardware, and... Um, yeah, let's let's see if we make it within the six weeks. But whether it takes six weeks or it takes eight weeks or, or whatever, um, I've been really happily surprised that it's been so much easier than I thought it was. When we first declared our intention to leave the cloud, I thought, oh, geez, this is going to take maybe years. Um, when we first moved into the cloud, it took years. But that's um, that's sort of part of the journey and part of the fact that a lot of the technologies have just matured. They've become commoditized. It's no longer exotic to run these kind of tools. And I think this is the realization that a lot of people haven't had yet, that moving out of the cloud does not mean giving up on modernity. It does not mean going back to a horse and bucky. I mean, we're still, uh, we're still writing with the same uh, tooling. We're still writing with the same techniques. And all that productivity gain that there is there, you can get that on your own uh, setup, especially if, like we do, you like to build your own tooling, which we do. And, and so we built some new tooling for this migration home, uh, something called Maersk. And, um, and yeah, so that's where we are right now. Halfway through, we've moved about half of the stuff we had in the cloud back home, three out of the seven apps. And we're working on another three this cycle. And I don't know, if, if everything went perfectly, we will have moved six out of seven apps at the end of this cycle. Okay. All right. That sounds super exciting, but uh, let's, let's jump back to, and you know, uh, I did some math and it turned out like in the first three minutes of this podcast that it's all faulty. So <laughs> uh, because you were talking about like 38 thousand dollars per week that you're spending on cloud right and yes if we were talking about like serving seven million people that would add up to roughly like a 28 cents per person per year but then if it's uh like you were saying it's like just half of it maybe and then maybe it's only even hey then it's a lot more, obviously. Yeah, I, I'll share some more specific numbers because it does not break down quite that neatly. And one of the reasons it doesn't do that is that Hay, for example, is a vastly more expensive product to operate than Basecamp. Um, Hay, each individual user just generates and receives so much more data than someone does on Basecamp. Even the most active user on Basecamp, they're writing messages all day long, they're uploading files and whatever, um, will barely reach the bottom least active user we have on Hey, because 
most people who use Hay just receive a ton of email, large emails, newsletters, attachments, all sorts of stuff. So it's just a lot more expensive to operate Hay than it is Basecamp. Basecamp falls more within sort of the traditional SaaS idea that the incremental customer is almost free. That's kind of one of the reasons why SaaS is such an amazing business model, because it's almost all um, the incremental costs are very, very low. Now, that's not quite true with, um, with email because the data loads are so much larger. I think at one point we calculated that we spent something like $30 per customer per year with Hay. Now, that's about a third of revenue, which is an absurdly high number compared to all the comps that we have. Uh, as you say, with Basecamp, the per user spend on, on infrastructure is incredibly low. But on Hay, it's actually quite high. So that's also one of the reasons why I'm, I'm so impatient to move Hay home, because it is by far the most expensive. And as you say, that number, the $38,000 a week that we're currently spending on the cloud was really what triggered me. I mean, we'd been talking about, oh, wow, the cloud is quite expensive. Oh, we're spending millions of dollars a year. Do you know what? Sometimes the timescale alone can create a distance to the numbers in such a way that you don't feel the numbers. Like feeling what a yearly budget is. Do you know what? It feels very remote in some right. way, which sounds perhaps bizarre. But then when you pull it back on a weekly basis, and I've even done the math of what it is on a daily basis, I go like, wow. That's a lot of money. I mean, somehow millions of dollars a year, it sounds like, okay, it's a lot, but $38,000 a week? I mean, we could hire so many more people. We, could, I mean, right. not that that's what we're going to do anyway, but there are so many other things that you could do, or even just think of it, not other things you could do. You could be so much more profitable. And this is one of the things that I think with, with a SaaS business, um, and one of the reasons I'm so conflicted about being in this SaaS bucket is that we've been a profitable business the entire existence of our SaaS living. Um, yet somehow we find, us in a, find ourselves in an industry where all the public comps, they're all losing money. And I'm always like, how do they manage to do it? How do you manage to run a SaaS business that just loses not just money, but millions of dollars, if in not some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars a year? And now I found out that part of the answer is the cloud. Because what's really been fascinating to me in this exploration is that we spent $3.2 million last year on cloud um, at 37 Singles. That is a highly, highly optimized budget. That budget could easily, easily be $10 million. Like We've had to do all sorts of things, back and forth optimizations, reviews, long-term commits, private pricing. Literally all the pages of the cloud spend playbook, we've applied to that. Um, and then I talk to other startups who barely turn page one. And I hear what they spend. And I go, wait, what? There's got to be, there's an extra zero in here somehow. How are you spending that much money? Particularly if, as you do, you do the calculation of how many customers do you have? How much are you spending per customer? And you just, this is just bananas. This is, yeah. I think... It's a scourge right now. It's a mental scourge that startups and SaaS companies in particular have talked themselves into thinking that running and owning your own hardware is such an exotic proposition 
that is not even part of their decision set. They're not even making a conscious choice. No, no, we looked at the, um, the cost and the, uh, the effort it would take to buy and run our own. Dark. No, no, no. They're not even thinking about it. They're just thinking cloud. Cloud is what it is. It costs what it costs. What are you going to do? And I just go like, yeah, no, that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, it doesn't line up to any sense of running a business, let alone a, a SaaS business is at the end of the day, just a business. It does not exist in a separate universe where costs don't matter. And I think this is one of the reasons perhaps our message have resonated so much right now is because in the good times, when investment dollars or euros are flowing very freely, no one cares about cost. The only thing that matters is, are you producing your 40% of your growth? Are you doing this? It's all top line, right? And then suddenly, not quite with a snap of finger, but almost the environment have turned. The vibe has shifted. And suddenly, oh, well, we can't raise more money at the valuations we just uh, raised that. In fact, maybe we're looking ahead at like 90% decreases. Oh, we, we should probably make the money we have last. Oh, how much are we spending on cloud again? Um, so that brings back that discussion that um, cost actually does matter. You can conveniently perhaps forget it for a while when times are good. But as soon as times just turn moderately adverse, um, it matters again. And then this discussion becomes incredibly relevant because as I see it, for most SaaS companies, for most startups, there are two big costs. It's payroll and then it's the cloud spend. It's the cloud bill. And I made the argument uh, last week or the week before that, that if you are to choose between those two, you have to cut back. And what I'd much rather see you cut back on your cloud bill, particularly because it's probably quite wasteful as it is, and then not fire as many people. Wouldn't that be better for everyone involved? Notwithstanding that some companies did grossly overhire and they do need to correct on that. But all other things being equal, cut back on the damn bills that you send to Amazon or Google or Microsoft instead of cutting back on actual people. Okay. All right. Well, uh, it, it makes sense, right? But um, first thing, and this is something from one of your posts, something about your, your service um, stutter at some point when you're using your, your hardware. I think people are terrified of that. Uh, it's such a a uh, terrifying thought of like people are going to experience a minor um, complexity or inconvenience of using your service that they're never going to think about going to hardware. Uh, that's that's one. And the second one is that, and I absolutely agree with you. Like cut back on on costs of like bills, right, and, and cloud and whatnot. Uh, but before you do that, uh, and the point we arrive at that um, decision is when we already are overspending on people and uh, cloud, right? So uh, the, the decision that it has to be made is whether or not we, we still have some money to spend on the hardware because this is right. Yes. Yes. We, we cannot just substitute one for another. So, Okay, so where where to get the money and how to convince people <laughs> that it's okay, you know, if, if the service stutters. Yes, so that is an important distinction. And also one I try to make whenever I talk about this cloud business is that if your startup is um, very early on and it's still largely unproven and it hasn't found product market fit and so forth, 
Yeah, do you know what? That's probably not the time where you have the maneuver room to think about, oh, actually amortization over a three-year period is going to be just fine. So my message is mostly targeted in terms of, all right, run out and buy a bunch of hardware instead against this sort of mid-tier. Um, that is SaaS companies that already have significant revenues such that they have cash flow that they could actually invest in capital expenditures to do it, not the really early stuff. But what I found in our calculations is that the payback rate for buying your own hardware versus renting it from the cloud in a lot of cases is obscenely short. I'll give you one example. We were looking at some new caching servers that required a bunch of um, a bunch of uh, SSDs of 12 terabytes or something we wanted. And the back of the envelope napkin math for that was it was going to cost us something like $7,000 a month to rent it. And it was going to cost us something like 6500 to buy it. So as in, you literally... And of course, that's not the entire story and there's operational stuff and so on. But it gives you an order of magnitude that in some cases, um, with some of the cloud stuff, you can actually buy it very quickly compared to what you were going to rent. That it is not this idea that, okay, I have to spend three years worth of rental up front to buy things such that I, in year five, will start seeing the returns of it. Because I fully understand that's a very long time horizon for a lot of people, and it doesn't really compute to sort of acute needs to, to do a change. But that's why I'm so adamant that people at least just start running their own numbers. This is doubly so if you're using the cloud services that people like to promote the most, that is the managed services. Uh, Amazon has, for example, something called RDS, which is this managed setup for databases where you have to know less about databases and they do a bunch of stuff for you. If you run the calculations on just how obscenely expensive that is, you'll see that the amount of time uh, it takes before it's a better deal to buy your own, at least economically, is so short. That this is something that can make sense within a three-month horizon or six-month horizon, let alone the multiple years you'll be able to own this hardware um, for afterwards. So I do think that currently the main blocker is mental. And it's mental for the first reason you mentioned, which is that people have somehow forgotten that we built this entire internet on the basis that people own their own machines in data centers and Hundreds of thousands of people knew how to operate them. And somehow we're like a lost civilization that within five years, there's a mass amnesia. And now no one knows how to do hardware anymore. And even when I say do hardware, people have this misconception that companies like ours, mid-sized SaaS companies, are like manually putting RAM slots in tight of computers and racking them and like sweating with uh, screwdrivers and so on in data centers. What are you talking about? I have not seen a computer that we own in 20 years. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll go further. I've never seen, like physically. I've never physically, perhaps beyond one tour of a data center one time, ever seen any machines that we deal with and neither have the majority of our operation teams because that's just not how modern data centers work. Modern data centers have um, providers on site that you can hire to receive a box that you order from Dell or HPE and take it out of the box and put it into your rack, connect it to power, connect it to the internet, and then bleep, 
an IP address shows up on your end, just like if you had gotten it from the cloud. Yes, the cloud is much quicker. So if you need a box within five minutes, nothing beats the cloud. But if you're like, eh, do you know what? I could wait like a week and a half for my new box to come online. Um, the experience is surprisingly similar. But this is part of that amnesia that I'm trying to push back against. That A, this knowledge already exists. B, nothing changed. Nothing changed in the past five years in terms of how difficult it is to operate this machinery ourselves. The only thing that changed was an entire generation of entrepreneurs and developers came of age with cloud. And cloud was sold to them as the future in such a way that they did not even consider um, owning their own hardware as a possibility. We're now rediscovering that. We're like, oh, like uh, the pyramids, how did they make them? While like the people who actually built the pyramids are like right next door and like we could just ask them. We could even hire them. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Okay, so uh, I guess uh, that, that's true. It's oversimplification. Everyone, everyone's talking about the speed. The speed is everything. Uh, the speed of uh, shipping features, the speed of uh, getting your uh, your service online. Like uh, there are a bunch of videos on YouTube, like how to uh, start a SaaS in a week, two days, one day, half an hour. So I guess, yeah, that's, um, we are spoiled in that way. Um, I mean, but I actually want to let me let me uh, yeah, address that sure. point for a second, because first of all, I think it's largely actually bullshit. Nothing important or worthwhile was ever built in a day or a week. Some important prototypes, some important explorations, yes, but entire businesses, no. Um, not only that, this misconception that the world is moving so fast that if you cannot get exactly what you want right now in five minutes provisioned, you're going to lose the race. What race? What are you talking about? When it comes to SaaS, um, one of the, the reasons this whole business model has grown so much and in fact have swallowed so much of the software business is that it's long term. Every SaaS business in the world is like, well, I'm going to spend a bunch of money acquiring customers, but I am going to earn it back over three years. You're already long-term planning. You're doing all the long-term planning when you compare LTV to CAC, which is the basic comparison that every single SaaS company in the world does when they are uh, calibrating their, their marketing spend, right? No one is looking at like, oh, I need to earn back in a week. No one has an earn back like that. 
Why are you looking at earn back on something like buying a server in a week or even getting it up and running in a week? Now, the other fascinating point here is that the cloud is actually slow at a ton of things. Um, modern hardware is insanely fast. Um, if you get the latest stuff, the latest AMD chips, the latest SSDs, all of that stuff, those servers are so incredibly powerful and can take you so far that you can buy one or two of these machines and you'll probably be able to scale actually just with two machines to a highly profitable multi-million dollar um, mid-tier SaaS business. I'm staking that as a claim given what I've seen right now. Um, just as a quick aside, one uh, one guy did this um, back of the napkin thought experiment that you could run if you rewrote a bunch of things, Twitter on a single machine. Now, that was a proof of concept, but he backed it up in a very compelling way to the point that like, do you know what? Twitter is is internet scale, right? Like that is one of the biggest sites on the internet, da, 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 da. What do you think the odds are that your little SaaS company with 50,000 customers can't run on two machines? Probably pretty low. But over and over again, I meet these SaaS companies who are spending ridiculous sums in the cloud um, because they just like consider it water. Like they're fish in water thinking like, what is water even? They don't know another universe. So anyway, I could harp on this point for a billion years. I just, I think it's a fallacy that uh, owning your own hardware is somehow incompatible with speed. And I think we are a great example of that. We are shipping so much software on such a regular basis with teams of two. The standard team size at 37 singles is two. One programmer, one designer, deploying things themselves, setting things up themselves, making product management decisions themselves. There is tons of speed available on that. And owning your own hardware is in no way, shape or form an impediment to that. Okay, and uh, you are also doing something to make it easier to move off cloud. So let's get to Maersk, right? And that's, is it a pun? Like everyone's talking, like, is it a pun in another Danish shipping company? Is it, what is it? Is it, so let's, <laughs> I, I'm leaving that one. Place. I'm leaving that one uh, <laughs> sort of hanging in the wind, having, having fun with people doing the phonetic comparisons on, uh, on that, but yes. Maersk is the tool that we've um, developed inside 37 Signals um, to make this happen for us. Now, what Maersk is really is um, basically just a way to use some fundamental breakthroughs in computer science as I see it. Maersk has no fundamental breakthroughs. It is glue, it's instrumentation, it's ergonomics, it's ease of use. What it's really built on is just Docker. Docker is this tool for uh, taking a software application, putting it in a box and sealing that box such that it depends on nothing else. You can ship that box to a new machine that has never seen that application before and presto, in one command, it's up and running. Where in the quote unquote olden days, first you had to do a bunch of prep on that machine. You had to install all the dependencies. You had to make sure that everything was just right. It was very bespoke. In the operations world, um, we used to call this uh, treating your servers as pets, like they were unique and special and you took care of them. And this is a bit of a crude uh, comparison, perhaps, and I hope I don't offend any vegetarians here. But the modern way of thinking about um, operations is to think about your servers like cattle. They're commodities that 
one cow is as good as the next cow, at least within the um, margin of error that we care about. And you know what? If one of them dies or gets slaughtered, you're not going to have a memorial service for that, right? You're just like, that is business as usual, which means that you treat them all the same, which means that you automate the process and all these other things. Um, actually, spelling out this whole um, comparison here, I think I'm going to stop using it because I get industrial <laughs> farm vibes here. And I actually uh, yeah. don't, uh, don't particularly enjoy those. Um, but this general concept that uh, the, the world has, has changed in these ways that has made it much easier to, um, to set these things up, I think is, uh, is a key part of it. And what Maersk does is it builds on top of this fundamental technology and then it just, it scales it all the way down. Because what has otherwise been happening in the startup operations world is that seemingly everyone else have jumped on this thing called Kubernetes. And Kubernetes is a, let me phrase my words carefully here, is a really interesting, highly sophisticated, tremendously complicated project that it takes at many places, large teams to operate, and even so, um, with varying levels of success. Let's just put it like that. I think it's a real breakthrough that the, the likes of Amazon and Google and Microsoft and other hosting providers, for example, who are providing infrastructure as a service can now standardize on something like that. Wonderful. Great. Try to run that yourself at a company even of our size. And not so great. Highly complicated, high risk, um, so many moving pieces. We looked at it several times and even got close to pulling the trigger on it with the help of, of some consultants who, who thankfully turned out to be ludicrously expensive in themselves and then causing us to reconsider our path here. That you know what? Kubernetes is not for us. And it's much the same as I find a lot of other technologies in this business where, say, Facebook comes up with some new way of doing user interfaces. And they're like, this is fantastic. It's working so well for us. You should use it too. And some small startup of five people hear that and go like, well, Facebook is a large company. If they're having success with tool X, um, it must mean that tool X is wonderful. And of course it worked for us. When the reality is very often the direct opposite, the kind of tools and techniques and processes that work well for a company of 50,000 are usually 180 degrees exactly the opposite of what a company of five should do. A company of five um, just operates in a different universe than a company of 50,000. It has different concerns. It has people who have to wear multiple hats. Um, it has uh, these integrated roles where a single individual really have to understand everything versus as a company of 50,000, you have just endless rabbit holes of specialization. And that is just not compatible um, with sharing tools in a bunch of ways. And I think this is one of those ways that Kubernetes is ill-suited to be a tool for small to even medium-sized companies. So we needed a different tool that tried to accomplish some of the same, same things, use modern techniques to running containerized software on your own machines. That's what Maersk is. Uh, we've been building it for, started in middle of January and we already run three production apps on it. By the end of, uh, of this month, I'd say, we're probably gonna run three more. We now have a large, growing, enthusiastic community of people who realize exactly the same thing, which is, as it often happens in technology, that 
you have something that seems to be dominant, that everyone feels like they're supposed to know, and that if they don't know it or don't understand it, it's actually them who are kind of stupid. And thus they keep quiet about the fact that they have reservations or don't know if they can do it or they think the bar is, is not appropriate. They just keep quiet. And then suddenly something happens, a new tool comes out, which just lets that group of people sigh, ah, finally, there's something else. Someone is saying, do you know what? That thing that everyone else is saying is just the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah, do you know what? It's not for us. I think that's what happened with uh, with Maersk. In fact, not that I really like these popularity contests, but of all the projects that I've launched in, in a quite a long time, Maersk has been the fastest growing on GitHub. Uh, I think we're up to like 5,000 GitHub stars, whatever the hell that means. Um, but just the attraction of a community, outside contributors, people who are running real production loads on it, on something that basically didn't exist at the beginning of the year. Like that's right. a to me, is proof of, in SaaS terms, product market fit. There's product market fit. There's a bunch of people who had, to use another SaaS term, hair on fire. They were squeezed in between overpaying for uh, managed services on, and intimidated by the complexity of running it on their own. And Maersk is falling into the sweet spot that is putting out that fire in their hair and is, is being exactly the fit that they needed. Okay. All right. And that makes sense. Right. But that's also, those are also early adopters. Right. And, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't have to, um, uh, tell you, you, you know, it yourself, early adopters are just junkies for, for all this new stuff. Right. So, uh, and don't get me wrong, what you're saying, makes absolute sense right uh, and uh, buying your uh, your hardware and trying to get off the cloud and optimizing the cloud up until you know you can you absolutely cannot stay there any longer because it's just a ridiculous amount of money uh, but um, but then again operating it um, yeah a lot of people think it's just uncool and that's kind of a big deal these days right it's uncool second you still have to to have some money to, to buy it to to operate it to move everything there and a lot of people that are affected by you by by, by your persona by your um social media status and everything a lot of them um at least what I see, and I try, I tried to do a bit of a research before I go into this. Uh, they are smaller, a lot smaller than than Basecamp, than Hey, than than thirty seven, anything that you just uh, said. So, what is the percentage <laughs> of people that are trying Maersk and are trying to to get off cloud with their project projects, are actually going to? to do it, to actually go through with that, you think, and how much of an, um, of a difference it's going to make the, this whole wave, or maybe, you know, maybe not in 2023, maybe it's just like a long-term project. Yeah. I think this is a wonderful point. And let me start with a, uh, a, a time machine jump here. Um, go back to 2003. I, uh, not 2003, 2004. I appear at my first Ruby conference in the US. I attend my first Ruby conference in the US. 
Um, that Ruby conference has uh, 43 attendees. During my presentation on Rails, I asked by show of hands, how many people work professionally with Ruby? How many people are being paid to program Ruby? Two hands go up. One of those hands is mine. So there was literally one other person in attendance at that entire conference who was being paid to work on Ruby. Talk about early adopter. Talk about being there for the passion of it, for high ideals, for the love of beautiful code, for putting the human before the compiler, all these values that are present in the Ruby system. Um, and then see where we were just three years later, 2006. In 2006, you already had Shopify being built, not just being built, uh, launched. Um, GitHub, um, a bunch of these billion-dollar companies we're now looking at, do you know what? They were forged within a couple of years after that first conference where literally two people in the U.S. at a uh, Ruby conference would raise their hands when asked, are you doing this professionally? So I have an absolutely um, uh, delusional sense of what's possible. That is one of my most cherished um, character flaws, if you will, that I'm absolutely delusional about what can happen, that I think good ideas can change the world and very quickly, particularly within software. And the reason I say that is, of course, I have this totally skewed sample size, which mainly includes Ruby on Rails, which is something I started in 2003. I wrote it all by myself. I took a application base camp, which has gone on to make hundreds of millions of dollars and put it into production myself um, as the sole operator of it, and then saw it grow into the thing that now has well over a million applications made on it, uh, tons of billion-dollar companies built on and so on. So I take that spark, that experience, that hope and optimism into every single project that I do. And whether that is Rails or it's Hotwire or it's Maersk, I think, you know what? If you have a better idea in technology, there is a very real possibility that you can change people's mind. So that's what I'm trying to do. But I also then know what the adoption curve is. The adoption curve is exactly as you say. The first people who show up, show up because they're frontier people. They're adventurers. They like playing with new stuff for the sake of it being new. That is not a long-term sustainable thing for a community, but it is a necessary kickoff for it to reach escape velocity. Um, and that escape velocity, uh, we're already well on the way. Like to just do the direct comparison, Maersk now is so much further ahead in terms of its adoption and its community building that Rails was at the same time. Uh, three weeks after, or not three weeks, two and a half months after Rails was launched, there was about still five people and nobody doing it commercially, right? Except uh, except for me. So again, does that mean one project is going to be like the next? Absolutely not. Ruby on Rails was most likely a one in a lifetime uh, project experience. I'm ever so grateful to be involved with that. If the, and if that is the, the greatest impact I ever have on the technology industry, I shall die a happy man. So it's not like I'm chasing that or that is the bar in any way, shape or form. It is just an expression of that adoption curve. As you say, it can go very quickly from no one is doing this. No one knows about it. It's just a bunch of hobbyists, amateurs playing with it because it's new and because it has an appeal to boom, suddenly it's 
in the biggest corporations. Suddenly it's everywhere. Suddenly it's in the water. And I think Maersk 100% has the potential for that. And whether it's Maersk or not, you know what? The funny thing is I don't care. I am not wedded to this tool. I am wedded to the idea that the internet should not be owned by three to five companies that run mega hyper clouds. So to me, there's we talked a lot about cost savings because that's the most immediate way to get this message across. But some of the other uh, reasons for why I'm involved with this endeavor are even more important to me. And perhaps the one I hold most dearly is that we should be working in the service of the internet if you stand to benefit from the internet. I owe my entire career to the internet. I owe my fortune to the internet. I own actually my my business partner, my love, my everything to the internet, to the open free internet where I didn't have to ask for permission. Um, that internet is being chipped away at from a lot of different angles. And one of the most pernicious ways that it's being chipped away is, is from the centralization of all computing inside the hands of just a handful of these hyperscalers, right? Who have shown, as all centralization does, that it is liable to, I don't know if manipulation is the right word, but to influence. Let's use that. That's a more um, neutral term. Influence, where suddenly they get to say who can and can't be on the internet for which or what reason. That's a really bad turn for this internet that I know and love and grew up with. And I want no part of it. I would like to inspire a, a literal rebellion when it comes to that vision of the internet, that the internet is just owned by these empires. Just like I've tried to be on the barricades when it comes to the app stores and mobile, it's the same tendencies, the same idea that if you have a software ecosystem that's controlled by two companies, like mobile is, it's just Apple and Google. Yeah, they'll collude like duopolies and they will absolutely abuse everyone else to maximize their profits. And we're seeing some signs of that in cloud already. Some of these obscene prices are possible because the likes of Amazon are correctly assessing that they don't think people believe they have a choice. So there's a sense of learned helplessness here that I'm particularly aggrieved about where it's kind of like the the textbook example of learned helplessness with the elephant that as a as a as a young right. elephant get chained to to a pole in the circus and they can't get out because they're not strong enough yet they grow up to be a full grown 5 ton elephant or however much an elephant weighs they could pull that pole out in a second they don't know they can't learned helplessness we're in a state of learned helplessness when it comes to operating our own hardware working in the service of a decentralized internet the way that I was about to say that I believe the internet to be, which is bullshit. That is the way the internet was designed, literally from the DARPA days onward. It was designed such that if a certain data center owned by Amazon in US East One, which happens to be the most popular Amazon uh, web services region, goes down, a third of the internet does not go down with it. So I think there's some deeper pathos here that we can fight for, we can rally around, we can find meaning in which is also something I, I care about. There's so many people who walk around uh, disillusioned and almost nihilistic about what work is and why we're doing it and, and whatever. And it, it can't all just be cost, right? You're not going to inflame the hearts of people everywhere, right. but like you can save a buck. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's a great, like big vision, but let's, let's get back to earth a little bit and uh and just uh 
um, create like a, a feasible solution for for the startups, for the founders that are extremely viewed up by by th this whole thing. Uh, they know that it's a solution. Uh, so, at what point would it make sense to to buy your own hardware? Uh, would it be after you've grown on the cloud, and then you know you hop on Maersk, and then you <clears throat> you go and order your own um, hardware, or does it make sense to start with it? So, I think it's a evaluation that's not too dissimilar from the adoption curve. You have your, what is it? Um, you have your pioneers, you have your early adopters, you have your grand middle or whatever it's called, and you have your late adopters. There's like f four or five personality types or not even personality types, adoption types when it comes to the classical adoption curve that you can look at, right? And I think some of that is present here. I think if you are a technical find founding team, who um, know your way around the technologies, um, things like Docker and so on, or things you're highly familiar with. Um, I think it's, it makes sense to start with that out the gate, something like Maersk, to get the flexibility to do it later. That does not necessarily mean buying your own hardware, but I will be honest with you, if I was starting my own startup tomorrow, I'd probably buy a piece of hardware. I probably would. That's not because it ultimately, quote unquote, makes sense. I don't think it does. So it's not for the late adopter to do it like that, but for the pioneer who wants that fire in their chest to help them motivate them forward. I'd say the, the most scarce resource for any entrepreneur is actually not money. It's motivation. Motivation is the super fuel that powers all else. So if you can ground or, or mine or extract additional motivation in part by some of your technology choices and believe that you have a, a grander meaning here, you're working in service of the internet at large, you're not just following the herd, you're not just going with the big tech monopolists for your shovels. Do you know what? I think that uh, there's a calculation I can make in my head where the payback on that is immediate because of additional fire in your, in your stomach and in your heart. Um, but that's a certain character, right? There are many other characters. There are characters who are like, I'm just trying to solve a business problem here. I've identified a business problem. Um, I don't know if it's gonna work. I don't have product market fit. I don't have a bunch of people. I don't have any highly technical folks. No, no please don't. Just jump on uh, uh, Render, Heroku, uh, any of these fully managed services. Um, that is a great place for you to be until you figure out whether there's something there. That's the kind of person who is going to be hard pressed or I'm going to be hard pressed to convince with a fiery speech about the purpose of the Internet because they're looking at it more like a business. And that's why I also focus so much on this cost argument, because every business owner um, who has to make payroll and, and have to have more money in the bank than, uh, than going out, they can understand that, right? It's a very mass appeal argument, but it does not play in early phase. I would say if you are in the, hey, I'm just looking at this argument from a cost perspective, you have to be spending probably hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros on cloud, unless you are in a region where you have more time than money. There are tons of regions around the world, uh, South America, uh, places in Africa, other places where um, 
you might find yourself in a situation where you have a lot of time and not so much money. And if you are in one of those situations, you might actually look at some of those cloud offerings and go like, even in the small scale, it's kind of expensive. Can I get by with a cheap VPS? Uh, can I get by with an old server I connect to the internet? Can I get by with something else? I think there's also a case there to, to be made. But I do think the broad middle, most people, most of the time are going to be the ones persuaded by, oh, we're spending an enormous amount on cloud now. Therefore, now is the time to look into it. But you can do your prep work. Uh, Maersk, for example, just to take one example of one tool, is fully compatible with starting in the cloud. In fact, I did half the development with Maersk using cloud services. I used Hetzner, I used DigitalOcean, exactly because they are so easy and quick to spin up something for a test. And until you've validated that there's a there there, um, you should obviously be hesitant about investing a bunch of money in something that's completely speculative. And as we know, most startups fail just to get even off the ground. Why spend a bunch of money, especially if you don't have it, on something completely speculative if you don't need to? So cloud still makes plenty of sense. There's still the early times where it makes plenty of sense. There's even like the early middle times where it can make sense because you're not spending that much money. There's It makes sense when you have hugely variable loads. If you have like, well, we basically get no traffic um, all the way around, but then on the last Sunday of the month, because we're a payroll company or something, our load spikes up at 100%, or not even 100%, I'm just gonna say 100 times. 100%, I'd still say, buy your own stuff. But if it spikes up 100 times, kind of like the original idea behind Amazon Web Services, right? Why did Amazon make it? Because they bought all this hardware so that they could make it through um, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and Christmas. And then the rest of the year, it laid unused, right? Perfect case for cloud, perfect case for renting. You should absolutely rent the things that you only need rarely or occasionally. You should absolutely buy the things that you use all the time. Okay. All right. That that makes sense. That's a that's a great pitch. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but yeah, um, just uh, just a couple more questions. Uh, I know I promised to to finish earlier, but uh, that that's a that's a very interesting conversation. So, <clears throat> just something about you and uh, the way you've been very vocal, very uh, active, very uh, transparent about everything that you're doing. Uh, in the business, as a founder, um, you, you, a lot of questionable, controversial stuff like uh, send your boss to hell. <laughs> like, what? What? <laughs> um, what's that about? Like, what? Why did you? Was it? Um, was it a thing to add to this controversial, like, badassery um, flair, or? Are you trying, I don't know, something in productivity space? Is this kind of a, like a marketing uh, pun or what, what was it? Yeah, so Send Your Boss to Hell is a marketing campaign that we just made that um, essentially gives an employee the, the opportunity. It's like a sweepstakes. It's a competition, if you will, or, or a lottery is probably a better term. Still running. Where you, where you <laughs> enter your boss's name into into this website we made send your boss to hell and then they have a chance of winning a vacation for i think it's a week or two um to hell the cayman islands hell happens to be a city in the cayman islands and it's all of those things as you mentioned a we do this because it's just fun 
I love having fun at work. I love poking fun at things. I love poking fun at myself and our structures. One of the longest running themes that we've had at our company, even now that we're 80 people, even though I use the label CTO and Jason uses the label CEO, that we have a deep inherent skepticism of management and find that management in a lot of cases is, is net negative. That one of the reasons why employees can't get their work done on time and aren't happy at work is because their management is nagging them all the time about dumb things that they should just look in base camp for. Now, that's a bit of a plug, but it's, <laughs> it's where it all ties together, right? Like I like to do things that add up to, to all of the things at once. It means something. We're making a real point. We're making a real point here that there's a lot of bosses that are net negative for the people on their team. Like that's a, a, a real point that we've talked about more seriously in other ways. Then we wrap it up in a campaign because it's fun. Then that campaign in itself has a counterintuitive or controversial or it has an edge to it. That's not just the same, oh, you can uh, be more productive if you use our tool. Yeah, every productivity tool says that. Like there's nothing unique about that. I, I like being unique. I like swimming in blue ocean rather than uh, red ocean, which by the way is, is perhaps my favorite business strategy book of all times, which isn't saying much because I usually hate business strategy books, but that is uh, one of the few good ones. It's called Blue Ocean Strategy for, for that reference. But it's all of those things. Um, and and I think it's, it's one of those things where we like to think of ourselves as doing a bunch of stuff that we would never get permission to do. If we had to go ask a board or we had to go ask some investors or we had to go ask someone else who would be inclined to lean on the safety side, rather than on the, hey, fuck it, let's just do it side, we, we would get a no, right? Um, so I do think we have that kind of fierce independence, perhaps even rebellious streak of, of poking fun of the industry, poking fun of ourselves, um, taking up serious issues, and then just doing stuff because we feel like it and go with the gut that this sounds like a good idea. Now, the interesting thing with that campaign is that it really resonated with some people. But it wasn't quite the like slam dunk hit that the other campaign we launched just uh, a month or so before was um, Just Let Me Do My Job, which is actually sort of plays on the same theme. Just Let Me Do My Job, a lot of the intellectual baggage in, in that suitcase is about bosses and excessive meetings and all these other things. And this is another funny expression of that. And it kind of landed differently. But that's also, what I love about it, do you know what? Let's not try to theorize about what's going to work or not going to work. We're going to go with a gut. I like what it is. So throw it out there. Let's see what happens. And you know what? No one has a batting average of 100 of home runs. That's just not what happens. I think if you're a major league uh, baseball player, you're incredible if you hit like a third of the balls thrown at you. I think I know nothing about baseball. I just vaguely remember that stat toy there. Um, so this idea that like, if you want to hit home runs, you got to start hitting, right? You got to start trying and you can end up in uh, paralysis, just noodling by yourself and you never know. And I see this all the time. We talk so much about our cloud exit, right? That whole discussion came to be on the basis of a throwaway Seven minutes, I spent one morning penning the first, why are we leaving the cloud? That article went on to be read by like a million people or something grotesquely large. It was the biggest single post 
we've had on any blog we've ever published in the past, I don't know, five years or something. Um, it was massive and it was written in seven minutes and I thought nothing of it. I thought like, yeah, yeah, this is the thing we're doing. Let me, uh, let me type it up and, and push it out. And then it blows up, right? And there's been other times where I invest maybe two hours writing this very cool piece that I think is oh so deep or interesting or whatever. And then I push it out and boom, nothing, right? Like two people says like, yeah, yeah, that was kind of cool. And I go like, yeah, I just don't know. And the underlying point here is here, nobody knows. No one knows what's interesting. No one knows what a hit is. No one knows what product market fit is going to be until you hit reality. And I think this is one of those things that entrepreneurs really need to internalize even deeper than they already try to do. And there's a lot of, oh, you have to be ready for failure. No, no, no. You don't get it. You don't know. You cannot plan. You cannot ask. You cannot theorize. You can't do anything. All you can do is subject your gut ideas to reality. That's the only measure of figuring out whether what you have has legs or doesn't have legs. And you will be surprised time and time and time. I mean, I've been writing on the internet for 25 years. In 25 years, I've probably published, I mean, what, 5,000 pieces? I'm trying to do the math here because I did 200 pieces on Hey World in the first 18 months. And that was like, I don't know, thousands of pieces, literally thousands of pieces, right? Yeah. Out of thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces and all that practice, right? Um, I have no clue. I literally have no clue what's going to resonate, what's not going to resonate, what's going to poke a nerve that's raw and I didn't see it or what's going to just really appeal to someone in some way. And I think that's the, um, that's the synthesis of all of this. And we, more than ever, try to internalize this at 37 Seagulls. Don't theorize. Don't plan. Don't barely even guess. Go with a, a gut instinct and just give it a try. Okay. That sounds like a great idea, especially in a big SaaS company. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, well, it, it works uh, as, as far as I see. So uh, since we're, uh, we started talking about home runs, uh, the question that I always ask about uh, all the founders, uh, what was your biggest win? What was your, your home run? And what was the biggest, most ridiculous, most unexpected failure? Uh, so the home run is really interesting because the, my two biggest home runs in my entire career both happened at the same time. It was Basecamp. And it was Ruby on Rails. And I wrote Ruby on Rails to build Basecamp. And the whole thing happened in four months. So the entire foundation of my career, my business, my fortune, my everything happened in a four-month span in the summer of 2003. As a, I'm going to try to do the math here, a 21-year-old or something like that. Um, that was when I had the oh. best, most influential ideas um, that I've ever had. And that's interesting too, right? That you think that, well, I knew very little. I knew nothing about running a major open source project. I'd never done that before. I basically didn't know anything about Ruby. I had just picked it up a few months earlier. Um, I'd never run my own business. Um, I never launched a, a SaaS product, at least in this category. We had done some earlier stuff and I've done a bunch of stuff. It's not like I just... I should say, showed up fresh off the boat here. I'd been involved in the internet industry for, for some time. But on all these metrics, I was a total noob. I was a total uh, ignorant person. 
um, I didn't have the experience or the guidance or the physical mentors or any of the other shit that people talk a lot about, right? And in that moment, um, exactly connecting to, to the discussion we just had, the two home runs happened right after each other. Literally two balls come my way. Bam, home run. Next one, bam, home run, right? And I've never surpassed that. I've done a bunch of things since and I've I've kept those home runs. That's the other important thing. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly if they are lucky slash good slash fortunate, whatever you want to ascribe their success to early on in their career, they delude themselves into thinking that they have it figured out and they can repeat it. There are so many entrepreneurs who never have a better idea than the first one they got or the first big one they got at least, right? So they sell it and then they put serial entrepreneur in their Twitter bio and they think they're so fucking cool. And then the next thing they launch is a total goddamn flop. Um, so have some, have some humility. I've embraced that humility very early on. I am completely 100% at peace with the fact that these may very well be the biggest home runs I ever get and that nothing else I do ever since. We've talked a bunch about Maersk, um, for example. Maersk, I'd say, have very low odds of ever having any kind of uh, measure of the same influence that Ruby and Rails have. Wonderful. Great. So what? Um, you asked about failures. So um, yeah. we launched the biggest failure we ever had um, was actually an, an, an email service of sort. We made like an email newsletter or, or news groupy service in, I want to say, 2004, something called Breeze. Um, it lived not very long. It is the only legacy product we've ever fully shut down because it was such a abject failure um, that it, there apparently weren't any users, so it was easy to shut down. And that was like product number six or seven. And again, you think, isn't experience cumulative? Isn't right. skills cumulative? Aren't you just getting better and smarter and uh, it'll be easier to time the market, figure it out? Absolutely fucking not. Because you don't know what reality is going to do. You don't know what's going to hit. In fact, um, the, the perhaps an even bigger failure that never got to materialize through the sheer luck or perhaps gut instinct of Jason, the business partner, was that Hey was originally intended to be a business email service for small businesses. Um, and then I think like three or four months before we launched, we built the whole product up. We've been working on that product for 18 months on the business email product, right? For 18 months. And when we get it close to launch here and the launch date is coming up, Jason goes like, I got a, I got a feeling here. We got we to gotta launch personal first. I'm not, I can't fully explain it. I think maybe it's going to be too hard on adoption. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Jason? The last consumer product we did was like 10 years ago. And it wasn't exactly a slam dunk. It was something called Backpack, which is a way to organize your notes and, and whatever. And he goes like, nah, no, no. I think we got to do personal first. And I'm like, dude, all right. I'm going to disagree and commit. Um, so let's do that. And it turns out that his gut was like 400% correct. That when we launched, the personal product took off like a freaking rocket ship, as we just talked about. And when we launched the um, company product later, it had nowhere near the same trajectory. In fact, I'd say if we just launched that, we would have looked at Hey as a failure. Not because no one signed up, but because the amount of people who signed up, at least in the early times, was not proportionate to the amount of energy we put into it. 
versus on the personal side, it was like two orders of magnitude beyond our wildest fantasy, right? And you're like, that's 20 years into it. 20 years into it, I can't call it. I can't call it whether something should be consumer or business. No fucking idea. Jason had had a hunch. He had a, a, a gut uh, red flag, if you can have a red flag in your gut, um, that just went like, uh, do you know what? Uh, I don't think this is right. And and we we did this pivot. It was not based on market research. We'd not asked a bunch of consumers, oh, would you buy this if we did? No, 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 no. Build a thing, slap a price on, shove it into the market, see what happens. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with you. Like everyone says that it, like with Hay, Hay was such a success and uh, you can uh, look at it from a standpoint of, okay, so we launched something and it was an instant success. So many people signed up for it. But uh, like you said, that you've had like your research projects and you kind of just uh, came to a point when it could be successful. All right. And so, also just, uh, just quickly on that yeah. point, it, it goes to this notion of there's no such thing as an overnight success. Everything that, that just appears on the scene, not everything, but rhetorically everything, um, has been 10 years in the making, right? Actually, even if, if you, I said these uh, home runs I came to sort of right out the bat, it wasn't right out the bat. I started working with the internet in 94, right? In 94 was when I made my first web page. So if you look at it on that time horizon, they were 10 years in the making, right? Um, yeah. It is exceptionally rare that someone shows up cold and they just strike gold. In fact, it basically just doesn't happen, right? Even the cases that appear like they happen, even the cases I present as I just did with Basecamp and Ruby on Rails, as though they could be viewed from that angle, usually you just have to dig deeper and you'll find a 10-year history behind it. And if you look at something like, hey, um, first of all, there's Breeze, as we called out, which came five years before. But then there was also, we'd been in business for 20 years working with the internet, building things. That's why we were able to do Hey in the way we did it, right? Not that other people couldn't have done it on different terms, but Hey is the product that it is today because of that. Um, so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, got it. Uh, and uh, yeah, probably the last question. Uh, we <laughs> we're way over time, but um, yeah, uh, also uh, a question that I try to ask um, a bit because everyone's um, kind of trying to understand like what's the next big thing. So there is AI, there is the crash of like, the financial systems, there is uh, people getting off the cloud. Um, what's the trend that you think is going to make the biggest difference, at least this year? Yeah, it's a Maybe great question. I, I've been meaning I've been meaning to write about AI for a while, and I've really mostly just kept quiet on it because everyone and their dogs seem to be so intent on freaking out like we just changed the entire trajectory of humankind, which, okay, maybe we did, but like, eh, maybe it's also a little early to call it. I mean, this kind of hysteria, I'll use that word, um, not lightly, uh, the last times I've seen that were once around crypto, although this is bigger, arguably. And, and I've even grown fond of some aspects of crypto, even though I'm also highly skeptical of other aspects of crypto. But like, come on, did not change the world sort of just yet, right? Um, right. The other one but was self-driving was... cars. 
if you look at self, the hysteria around self-driving cars in 2016, I think it was, where basically like in two years, everyone is going to drive a robot taxi. Um, and then we find out ah, it's actually kind of harder than that. You can't actually do that. Um, the VR, if you go even further back, I remember watching The Lawnmower Man, which is a movie from 1995, sort of showcasing the first bits of virtual reality, right? And I remember thinking there, there were arcades popping up. Virtual reality is like three years away. Then like every, we're going to work and we're going to live in virtual reality. And like, here we are. What is that going to be like 30 years later? And we're still like floating avatars with no legs in, uh, in Zuckerberg land. Uh, I don't know. I mean... It's hard. It's really hard to time these things. Now, none of that takes away from this spectacular, awe-inspiring, literally magical sensation you can get when you look at some of these AI uh, things. For me, I perhaps technically the, the language stuff is the most impressive, but the generation of images is the thing that for me is the closest thing to magic. Like I've read through some of the explanations about how this happens and I'm still blank. Like I don't cope. I don't can't understand it. Like it's beyond my brain capacity at the moment, or at least my insight to, to fully understand it. And as such, I feel like such a kid, right? Like the first time you see a magic trick and you go, whoa, how did they do that? Right? Um, and then sometimes, you know what? There's just like a card behind a hand and a distraction. So I'm sort of sitting back a little bit and um, and trying to think, you know what, um, predicting the future is basically impossible. What you can do, and I think this is, is it Metcalf's law or is it uh, Mr. Smalltalk um, who, who said that the best way to invent the future is to, and I'm fully butchering the quote here, but is to make it, right? So I'm trying, do you know what? I don't know where the future is going to go. I'm going to chase some things, cloud exit. I mean, it's such a small AI is literally a potential world-altering thing. A cloud X is, is, a, is a very tiny little ripple on the sort of calm seas of my little backwater here. But that's a kind of thing to do. And I find that to be more productive than either worrying about or, or even thinking too much about like where, where's, where's it going to go? What does it all mean? Can I control it anyway? No. Is, is, is the world also moving so fast that if I do not get a expert level understanding, say, of AI by tomorrow, I will forever be left at the train station of understanding? Come on. What are you, what are you talking about? Um, so in some sense, in some ways, in some domains, I enjoy being, if not a late adopter, then at the, at the very best, like an early adopter, even a middle adopter, not a pioneer. So that's how I feel about things like AI, for example. I don't have any interest in like personally sort of figuring out how to use, uh, what is it, uh, transmuters or the underlying technologies. Like, I'm so glad someone exists who loves that and is excited about it. And then I can just enjoy the fruits uh, someday. But yeah, I got to say, like right now, my, my skepticism antennas are kind of up. When everyone literally almost 99.8% goes like, this is going to change the world. I go like, you know what? It's uh, Someone's got to take the other side of that bet. There's not only a 0.02% chance that this isn't going to totally rewrite humanity as we know it. Okay. Are you using ChatGPT to write your LinkedIn post for you? <laughs> so this is, this is actually one of the reasons I'm skeptical, right? Um, a bunch of people are going like, isn't it amazing? I can give 
ChatGTP five bullet points and they can turn it into a bullshit presentation. And I go like, yeah, okay, so you got a bullshit presentation. Uh, that what the recipient is then going to feed into their chat GTP and turn it back into five marbled or uh, uh, sort of distorted bullet points of what you intend. So much of, of this stuff to me in that specific use case of AI seems to be about like, do you know what? We have all these weird pleasantries that we're supposed to go, these motions we're supposed to go to. A professional business presentation is a PowerPoint that is 28 pages long. When in reality, the insights are just five bullet points. There's nothing more in it. Then ChatGTP takes those five bullet points and embellishes the bullshit around it. Now, granted, if you're going to have to do that anyway, if you're going to have to introduce a 28-page PowerPoint full of bullshit, yeah, use ChatGTP instead of hiring McKinsey. I do think that is progress. But beyond that, like, is that the thing that's really going to revolutionize here? Now, again, I also don't want to fall in the other looted camp and like, oh, AI is nothing. I would have said that last year. Legitimately, early last year, I held the position that the majority of AI was snake oil and that it was bullshit. And I have absolutely changed my mind. I've absolutely seen the real stuff of it, been amazed, childlike, infatuated by the magic to the point where like, okay, I don't know how big it's going to be, but this is something. It's not nothing. There's something there. What is that exactly? Who the hell knows? You can be excited about that without being like, disboldened about, oh, we're never going to need programmers anymore because chat GTP can write Hello World. Okay. All right, not even Hello yeah. World. I don't even need to diminish any of the accomplishments of AI. Some of them are truly amazing. Um, but like, give it five minutes. Right, right. Uh, no, no developers, no, uh, no copywriters, no marketers. Um, yeah, the whole, I fully agree with you, the whole hysteria between like, oh, it's taking all our jobs. It's, uh, it's kind of a, yeah, maybe a bit too early. Uh, maybe true in the, uh, <laughs> at the end, but <laughs> maybe not, not just now. Okay. Well, uh, it, it's been, you know, it's been great. I have, uh, uh, a ton more questions to be honest but <laughs> i have to let you go at some point so um thank you so much for the conversation it's been amazing uh i need to use a few blips but <laughs> not not just as many as i expected so <laughs> um but yeah thanks so much and uh, i'm uh, super excited to see what else you'll be you'll be working on thank you so much it's been my pleasure to be uh, on the show that was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS group a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.